0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are from around the world. And as ever, we have got so much to cram in, in our short time together. So whatever you're doing, uh, let's get going. If it's okay with you, I'll reflect a bit on the latest twist in the Sturgeon Salmon saga. This one, a really significant twist. We might have different interpretations i don't know but i will give you mine very shortly Uh, we've got lots of fantastic questions and also a bonus this week now those of you who just like pure politics uh, you'll have to fast forward this bit Uh, but for those of us who want life in its full richness reflected in this podcast uh, there's going to be a recipe we've never done that before from a one of our regular listeners and emailers From Italy. I told you we were global and classy. So that's to come at some brilliant questions on flag waving. We talked about flag waving a lot last week. Uh, The theme has continued raging around British politics in a way that says so much about the state of the insecurity I think of this uh, country at this given moment. There are questions on that, on many other Issues as well. Of course, some of you have started emailing about the whole Salmon starting up a new political party drama and much more beside. All that to come. Before we get going, a reminder you know what I'm going to say, but it's worth it. On April the 15th, Rock and Roll Politics streaming live at King's Place. You can get some tickets there. Also, yeah, it's Easter next week, and I thought towards the end, I'm going to recommend a book to read, a book that I think provides quite a lot of insight into um, politics. In, on many different levels. So that's coming up as well. Some, t- some of you have emailed said, oh why we should do more book suggestions, me, you and everything. I think that's quite a good idea. I'm trying to read a bit more fiction at the moment because my life is so full of politics. I don't know if you feel the same. But anyway, I'm gonna recommend a political book towards the end with Easter looming. Not, I mean it's completely irrational as if is any different from any other day when we're in this lockdown although it's a semi-lockdown by next week isn't it by easter sort of anyway now salmond and sturgeon it's very interesting to me because um i know alex salmond a bit and he is to my mind one of the most interesting political figures to talk to he is such a sharp reader of the political rhythms. I'm not just talking about Scotland and what he achieved as leader of the SNP, which we, I mean, many of you disagree with independence. Quite a lot of you now support independence, those of you listening in Scotland. But from wherever you are, uh, you have to accept what he did with the SNP was epic to win those elections, to get an overall majority in the Scottish Parliament, to get that referendum etc. But beyond that he's a very interesting figure to talk about politics. Uh, he, He once told me that his hero was Harold Wilson and I found that very revealing in Wilson's ability to kind of keep going, to keep his party on board that doesn't quite match what's been going on with the SNP and Alex Salmond in recent times but he he has a fascination with politics which goes well beyond his own career so although there's been a lot of talk this weekend and over recent days about you know the scale of Salmon's ego driving the setting up of a new political party he is not so self-absorbed that he doesn't have a fascination with politics and way beyond his own kind of orbit and so I always work on the assumption that when a figure like him acts he has thought it through very carefully and of course on some levels He has. My reading of his announcement last Friday of a setting up of a new party is this, and I I don't know, but many of you will who live in Scotland and follow this so closely, that this is his alternative route to trying to A, get Nicola Sturgeon, that's the soap opera bit of it, and B, take a more radical route towards getting hold of a referendum. I assume his preferred route was the fall of Nicola Sturgeon triggered by the events of recent weeks but that of course didn't happen when the independent inquiry found that she had not misled parliament so she remains and what he regards as her cautious approach to a referendum remains in place also. So in terms of the substance of the strategy we know what it is. It is uh, partly to give her a bloody kicking but beyond that obviously it is to put the case for a more daring route towards a referendum and that has many consequences right away. As others have commented it means that the election campaign which has started now in Scotland towards the May parliamentary elections will be wholly reframed. Uh, There are now two parties from uh, originating from the SNP, the Green Party is there already also supporting independence but two originating from the SNP campaigning for independence but in different ways and the different ways will become a focus of the election. In a way, it wouldn't have been if Nicola Sturgeon had the field to herself. She was planning to put the case for independence and a timetable fairly vaguely outlined. And now she will be challenged much more about the nature of the timetable and what she plans to do in the aftermath of the election, because Salmond will partly determine the news agenda in that way so clearly that's what he is thinking and by standing only in uh, seats which are distributed via the so-called list system he can claim with some legitimacy that he is adding to the potential force for independence in the next scottish parliament all of that he'll have thought through he plays a game of chess better than most in British politics. He's demonstrated that many, many times. However, having said all of that, it seems to me that with his act, much more than all the dramas that have preceded this act, the court case, the split with Sturgeon, the recent dramatic committee hearings, first with Salmon, then with Sturgeon, more than any of that, What he has done by setting up a new party, by encouraging fairly prominent figures within the SNP to defect to that party, is a spell has been broken. Politics is partly almost mystical. It's about the capacity to cast a spell over all of us, the media and the electorate. And for many years now the SNP has done this they have created a sense of momentum of purpose of mission and for all the internal tensions about the degree to which you move towards the referendum and what devices you use to get it there was a facade at least of unity around that sense of purpose and mission when you have someone as prominent as Alex Salmond, however controversial a figure, setting up a new party, to put the case for independence, the spell is broken. There is a sense that, oh yeah, this mighty SMP, sort of taking all before it, is no longer quite so mighty. If it was, there would be no need for another party to if not compete with it because it won't be technically competing in the constituency seats etc but it's there and voters even even within the intensity of the debate about independence in Scotland still don't follow the hourly twists and turns of politics as we all do what they will do is get a sense of Well, something can't quite be right within the SNP. I mean the only parallel I can think of, of course it's not precise, nothing is in politics, all developments are fresh and distinct, but the only parallel I can kind of think of is with when the SDP defected uh, from the Labour Party. You had those then four big figures from the previous Labour cabinet all leaving the Labour Party you know and and they were charismatic figures on the whole Shirley Williams Roy Jenkins people like that David Owen uh, Bill Rogers all from that 70s Labour cabinet setting up a new political party now obviously on one level that was much much bigger in scale these were four heavyweights we've now got Alex Salmond and a few other prominent figures setting up this one but the impact was direct in one particular way it made the Labour Party unelectable and the first to see this at the top of British politics was the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher it was when the schism happened in the Labour Party that she realised she had the space to move and become more radical. There's a myth around that Thatcher really only became emboldened after the Falklands War in 1982. And that, when she started to fantasise, she was Winston Churchill-like. And incidentally, what a flag-waving eruption took place after that war. But it's not true her confidence that she was going to win the next election began to form when the Labour Party split and the SDP was formed. She was the beneficiary of the schism in the Labour Party when you think about it fairly obviously. It wasn't true at the time because the SDP had such a honeymoon that it was ahead in the polls, Labour was sometimes second and the Tories third but she knew it meant she was gonna win the next general election because of the signal that had been sent out. The signal at its most basic was that very senior figures in the Labour Party had decided that the Labour Party was finished and that they had to form a new party explicitly on the centre-left to replace it. And when such a signal is sent out by such formidable messengers, that Labour Party became doomed for many years, and the Tories won. Now, as I say, the whole parallel with Scotland is imprecise on so many levels compared with that, but at its broadest, that sense of the SNP marching on, kind of defeating anyone that comes close to it, Uh, has been at the very least challenged by this development and therefore it is possible you can't make these predictions but it is possible that the beneficiary of what Alex Salmond has done is not the cause of independence but the very opponents of independence in the same way that the SDP helped Thatcher no one else really certainly not the left of centre and Jenkins and co were on the centre-left they were social democrats they didn't help the cause of the centre-left by the split anyway it's going to be fascinating to see as I've said before when we reflected on the Salmon Sturgeon Shakespearean uh, fallout that it's always worth focusing on deeper causes as well as the kind of personality split and there are of course as those of you living in Scotland know much better than any of us lot living elsewhere one of them being England's tendency to vote for conservative governments given half a chance again and again and again so there's a deeper thing going on than Salmon Sturgeon that is England is moving away from Scotland as much as the other way round. So that is a deeper issue that has nothing to do with the two of them and all the rest of it. But we have, I think, seen with this development, a message, like with the SDP, that the SMP is viewed even by some of those who have lived within it and created it in its current triumphant form an unsatisfactory vehicle and that's a message that is not one that Nicholas Sturgeon would like to be dealing with ideally at this moment. I make no predictions as to what will happen. Maybe Alex Salmond who has been proven right many times before will have calculated that what this will do is create more parliamentary force for independence after May and give him and others a voice for a more radical approach to getting the the independence referendum which is the issue which has divided him and sturgeon he regards her as far too cautious she and she's now said this in her response to the creation of this new party sees him as a gambler and sometimes a reckless gambler so that's the kind of different strategic approaches that have driven this so it's a kind of multi-layered story. I think it guarantees, by the way, that the elections in May will be really interesting across the United Kingdom. Obviously, there will be a huge focus on Scotland. There would have been anyway. Uh, this just adds another twist. But it's a kind of super Thursday. I don't. Maybe no one will vote because indifference to politics explains a lot of what we're all putting up with in some parts of the country anyway but because the elections were postponed last year this is the nearest we're ever going to get to a general election between elections between general elections huge numbers of seats being contested so anyway get ready for that take a deep breath we might have to do a kind of special uh, after that one uh, because the outcomes will determine politics for you know, in terms of the UK-wide issues, you know, what Starmer's leadership doing is—is is this Tory vaccine bounce turning into electoral triumphs? And obviously, then you have the Scotland thing as well. So, it's all going to get really epic. Now, I said I was going to recommend a book. I'll do that at the. I'll do that at the end. My recommendation of a political book but let's have a look at a few of your questions now for those of you who weren't here last week you can listen back of course that's the joy of podcasts they don't disappear Uh, but for those of you who were just a reminder uh, I was looking at the obsession with flag waving that has suddenly taken place and what it tells us about the country and its Politics, and there are a few questions about that coming up. One from uh, Stephen Townsley, he just makes a point, really. Uh, Stephen says, Is the flag making industry the only industry to discover a Brexit opportunity? Yeah, those who make flags will be making a fortune. I mean, it's going to be compulsory soon. To, you can't go out without a flag, it won't be masks, it will be flags. Another thing, uh, we had a question last week, a very interesting question uh, about whether politicians can make a second coming and are they then stronger the second time they appear? For example, uh, we looked at the career of Ken Livingstone, who was an effective London mayor, but only because he had had the experience of leading the GLC, as it was called, in the 1980s. He knew which levers to pull. But I argued on the whole, there weren't really many second comings, that politicians, the big politicians had sort of one story in them. And once that narrative had been played out, that tended to be the end. But Andrew Campbell has written instead, saying, you must have heard me screaming David Miliband as you ran through former politicians ripe for a second chance. But you didn't acknowledge the screams at the time. Uh, Yeah, well... Lots of people say this about uh, David Miliband, Andrew. I I don't see it. I actually think if he had been elected Labour leader the first time round, there would have been loads of people saying they elected the wrong brother. Uh, In other words, he too would have made mistakes. Not Mistake's the wrong word. Um, He would have not shown himself to be leaderly. And people would have said, oh, if only they had elected Ed, who was, had a much clearer agenda breaking from the new Labour era. So that's what I think would have happened then. now, and by the way, I think both brothers were formidable in different ways, but I think not necessarily leaders. Um, now he's been out of the House of Commons for a long time. And... Uh, it's very difficult to get back in and you know he 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 is part of an era that has I think passed so yeah that's kind of what I think anyway what do I know Uh, it's but it is interesting and it's I think David is an example really of he had a narrative arc it was an extraordinary one an advisor behind the scenes to Tony Blair, his brother, an advisor behind the scenes to Gordon Brown. Both brothers emerging on the public stage at around about the same time, both discovering a ferocious ambition at about the same time. So, yeah, there we go. Uh, Joseph Thomas writes, uh, why, are, he says, Dear Steve, another excellent podcast. Oh, thank you very much. I can't mean this one because he hasn't heard this one yet. The last one. Um, I know I often ask about Labour, but uh, Joe, by the way, he's the one who does his laundry while uh, listening to the podcast. What a productive use of time. He says he wanted to ask about the Conservatives. Why are the Tories so good at papering over their differences? The only issue which seems to force them into the open warfare are Europe and the Green Belt. Well, Europe was one hell of an opening of uh, differences. And there has, in a way, uh, it's sort of been under-examined, I think, Joe, uh, the degree to which Europe, in the end, split the Tory party. But one side triumphed. uh, The Brexit side triumphed in the end. And that has become all-embracing. So Boris Johnson had to kick out the dissenters uh, in the last Parliament. Famously, he turned the likes of Nicholas Soames and you know, Philip Hammond into kind of revolutionary dissenters. Philip Hammond is the least likely revolutionary dissenter in the history of revolutionary dissenters. But he was purged from the Parliamentary Party because of his views on Brexit. So one side has won and the Tory party has permanently changed as a result. The formal schism that many expected to happen didn't take place because a purge took place instead. And it is a significant one. The Tory party is very, very different from even the party in the mid-90s which made John Major's life hell. But if you look at John Major's cabinet, it was all over Europe, his life was made hell. And this was when the schism was forming. Um, but if you look at his cabinet he had Ken Clarke as his chancellor, Michael Heseltine as his deputy prime minister and others who are passionate pro-Europeans. That could not happen in this Conservative Party. So on the whole it has a sense of survival and it certainly has a sense of how to win elections that the Labour Party has never really acquired. Look at the record but uh, it, it That Europe thing was profound and it happens sometimes, you know, the Corn Laws under Robert Peel, the party split. It's always about trade and Britain's place in the world that tends to split the Tory party. A question from Venetia Kane. She says in passing she thinks that uh, Keir Starmer needs to agree cooperation with other Uh, non-Tory parties in fighting seats at the next election, Uh, otherwise the Conservatives will win again and again. And she wonders whether, if that were to happen, whether Starmer or anyone from the non-Tory wing can undo the damage that she says has been caused in international relations over the last 20 or 30 years because of things like the threat to break the law over the Irish protocol, and other issues. It is interesting, with all the flag-waving going on, that those most ardent about waving the flag don't seem to have noticed. that There's been a sort of decline in the way Britain is perceived abroad. You can see that from some of Joe Biden's uh, tentative comments about relations with Britain, if it does anything to threaten the Good Friday peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and and many other examples too. Indeed, in the vaccine war, the EU has been all over the place with the vaccines. But one of the reasons it feels it has the space to threaten not to export the vaccines to Britain, even if that violates contractual arrangements, is because with old Lord David Frosty Frost, uh, Britain is threatening to break the law all over the place in terms of the withdrawal agreement which was entirely the product of Boris Johnson's negotiation. Uh, The reason we have this silly border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland was because that was his option as a way through. Theresa May had gone another direction, Europe had agreed to that, but he came up and did that. And now old Frosty says it's outrageous. Well, it's the consequences of Boris Johnson and Frosty's desires that were in that situation. Uh, Rob Jackson mentions the Lib Dems. He says, do the Lib Dems still have any relevance? Here in Haringey, they are in active opposition in local politics, but they seem to have gone missing from the national stage. Can they make a comeback? I'm reminded of William Hague's present remark after signing the 2010 coalition agreement. I think we've just destroyed the Lib Dems. And I certainly think the coalition period still hovers over them. On many different levels, the decision to go in with such enthusiasm, as Nick Clegg conveyed at first, with a Tory leadership on the radical right, uh, Nick Clegg fooled for the idea that they were modernising centrists, but they were absolute turbocharged Thatcherites, as Oliver Letwin once described them to me. And so on that basis, they continued to be wrecked by association but beyond that they haven't really had that debate within about who they are what they are why Clegg found it okay and not just okay but why he was so infused in the early years of the coalition why they didn't really prevail in terms of their main agenda constitutional reform were they outmaneuvered I mean, all those kind of things, you know, what is their economic stance? Are they orange book liberals, small state, market economy? Or are they the sort of Charles Kennedy, David Steele, left of centre, social democratic liberals? If so, are the two possible to coexist? You know, after the traumas they've been through, you know, parties need big debates. And then, work their way back onto the political stage ian davidge uh this is a interesting letter uh this is my first message to you well thank you for writing in ian i write to someone who's had a lifelong interest in politics so that's 70 years and counting well it's great that you're part of the rock and roll you're still rocking and rolling Ian. and he says it's been an amazing period to live through Anyway, Ian uh, guides me through some of the many political experiences he can recall, including Suez, which we talked about last week in the context. Suez was the point where Britain's sense of place in the world its own identity was really challenged for the first time since 1945 and still hovers over so much in British politics it kind of links directly to Brexit and the flag waving what happened in Suez if you didn't listen last week I kind of gave a summary of it Um, and so um, yeah Ian concludes with his fascinating look through his sort of political experiences so though it was an event far away and long ago the ramifications of Suez were huge apart from seeing off the then Prime Minister Anthony Eden it changed British society forever right up to the one we're living in today yeah I completely agree with you um so uh thank you for that keep in touch In. You know, I'm a great fan of context. We all are here on this podcast. So make sense of things for us uh, on the basis of what's happened in that long life of yours, which is still rocking, um, because it's only through context that the present makes any sense at all. Margaret Coulthrup writes to say that she was hooked on the theme tune. I get lots of emails, Margaret, about the theme tune to this podcast. She says, I think it's The Ventures. Uh, Well, that's new to me as i've said to others in fact somebody did email me and they thought they'd tracked it down all i know is i had to pay a fortune for it at some point and and that allows you to to play it it's, and it's not a kind of well known rock band but uh, you might be right but i've got i'm hooked on it now in fact i go running just listening to the theme tune and and really in your speed i mean you can do you can break all world records listening to it Um, But thank you for your inquiry, and you might be right as to its origins. Graham Briggs wonders uh, whether it's time for a completely new opposition party, given the failure of Labour to win elections. It's the perennial problem, Graham, that Labour won't go away, and if it won't go away, uh, it has to remain the main vehicle as an alternative to the government. To go back to the SDP again, it was absolutely clear and should have been to anyone around at the time but wasn't that when the likes of Dennis Healy and Roy Hattersley decided to stay in the Labour Party and remember in 1983 when the SDP was still very much in evident Tony Blair and Gordon Brown became all Labour MPs not SDP MPs it was absolutely clear that the SDP were not going to destroy Labour and wipe them out. So all it could do was split the non-Tory vote. So any changes, I think Graham will come within the Labour Party, but they are testing the claim to be an alternative government when they lose four elections in a row, as they have done recently. Daniel Cullen uh, writes, uh, (laughs) he's talking about Alex Salmond, he just says, this is quite a short question, one word question though why 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 uh, but actually daniel like with me he says salmon is clearly not an idiot and has been a smart political operator like or loathe him i know politicians are obsessed with legacy but surely anyone could see how desperate and awful he looks in setting up this new party utterly bizarre it it, it is to say i know him and i i i think he is a smart political operator but Yeah I know it's that second coming thing actually which we were talking about earlier when we had the question about David Miliband and whether he could be a second coming politician. Well for Alex Salmon this will be the third or fourth coming and in a way that narrative arc I know he had retired once before and came back and triumphed and things but it seems to me that that narrative arc for him ended pretty triumphantly, really, the day after the independence referendum when he resigned, in effect, handed over to Nicola Sturgeon. But let's see. I mean, I I never underestimate his guile and his capacity to read politics, as I said earlier, like a game of chess. Another one, there's no name at the end. The thing at the... Oh, yeah, there is. Sorry, yeah, of course there is. What am I talking about? It's from Simon Duffin. And uh, Simon writes, I'm afraid I can't match your fitness followers who run or row as they listen. Well, you only just therefore qualify, Simon, to get in on this. Um, I'm almost always driving as I play podcasts to and from my work in rural Victoria in Australia. I told you we've we've got loads of listeners in Australia. So if I miss any section of your weekly answers, it's because I'm focusing on avoiding the roaming ruse which occasionally try to jump into my path. Well, I hope you don't bash into one during this uh, podcast, Simon. Now, Simon says, I I remember Simon. He said, we actually met 10 years ago when I, Simon, was leading a different life as the European Parliament's official dealing with UK media relations. Uh, Yeah, I I remember it very well. Well, he said, I noticed your comment on Ed Ball's bizarre career trajectory, going from shadow chancellor to a Strictly dancer. Then, of course, the key other thing, being much more popular as the Strictly dancer. You'll probably find my career change a bit baffling too, as I've moved from the hurly-burly of Westminster and Brussels media operations to a new life treating people in pain and other physical ailments as a remedial massage therapist. I kind of, I think that's a brilliant career change. It doesn't pay as well, but boy, it's a whole lot more fulfilling with tangible results day by day. And I love how I can meet a sheep shearer with a bad shoulder one day or a gold miner with a crick neck the next. It's certainly different from Brussels and Westminster. Uh, I kind of, I'm listening and reading this with envy. Anyway, his question relates to Scotland. Ever since Brexit, I hold a more sympathetic candle for those seeking independence for Scotland, but I do worry that many of the arguments in favour of independence pretty well match many of those of the Brexiteers in terms of knee-jerk opposition to the distant political powers, Westminster or Brussels, and don't really address all the practical issues we are starting to see from Brexit – border issues, economic chaos, jobs, etc. – um, yeah, and I, I completely agree. I think uh, this is, where well, I've said this before and I kind of get responses that suggest that I'm wrong, but when I hear Nicola Sturgeon being so articulate on so many issues, so in command of the detail, although I have to say she is looking strained with this whole Alex Salmond business, as you would have to be not human not to be if you get the double negative but um, I completely agree um, that when she starts addressing the issue she can put the case against Brexit better than any UK politician and at the moment with Keir Starmer clunkily silent on the issue she's the only one who can do it but then when she tries to justify Scotland and has to address questions about borders and all the other things i think she suddenly loses that authoritative fluency because of the contradiction and um, it's going to be interesting if these arguments develop in the coming months assuming say the smp plus alex salmon and others do get a majority in the next scottish parliament how these questions are addressed So thank you very much for keeping in touch and good luck with the it's such fruitful work making us all feel better. Um, It sounds a great change of lifestyle on every front. Uh, Do keep in touch with all of us uh, with rock and roll politics and the podcast and good luck in Australia where it's obviously you've been for some time. Now as I say we are global we're we're so global we're now back into Europe Uh, Andrew Mulholland has uh, written, he says, How important do you think it is for an opposition to have an overarching vision? There have been two occasions when an opposition won big during my adult lifetime, 79 and 97. There have been three when the opposition scraped across the line, 70, 74 and 2010. Whatever one thinks of the substance, both Thatcher, 79, and Blair, 97, had a clear vision for the country into which they could easily and logically slot their policies. Other contenders did not, although one might make a case for Michael Foot in 83. although uh, of course, there, this is me speaking, uh, Labour was so divided and there was the SDP issue. So you could have a vision and still be doomed. Um, anyway, back to... Andrew, uh, this relates to your teaching point, I think, but perhaps the vision is the policy framework, whereas teaching is more about communication. My familiar thing that successful leaders have to be teachers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Andrew, that the the winners not only are teachers, but they have to have something to teach. They have to have a, a vision of the country, the way their party has adapted to changing times, changing demands, changing moods. And it's partly, to go back to the SNP point, it's partly about casting a spell. You have to have, convey a sense that you have a very clear vision, even when it is not fully clear. I've said before, for example, if you look at Blair in 97, Uh, he was offering a referendum on the euro so you didn't know whether he wanted us to be in or out he was offering a referendum on electoral reform so you didn't know whether he believed in it as part of his vision for a modern Britain etc but that sense of owning the future uh, is the key to winning elections so I completely agree with you now here's the bonus for everyone Andrew then goes on to write since I reported on my olive picking antics last autumn, I've tended to listen to the pod while cooking. I'm still out here in Italy and my olives are regularly on the menu. You confess that your diet had been a bit limited during lockdown. Well, here's a simple recipe for an olive pasta dish that you might enjoy. It's vegetarian or even vegan. Well, I'm, I'm vegetarian and I know a lot of the listeners are, but even if you're not, I'm just going to give you a, a quick summary of Andrew's recipe, direct from Italy. Uh, you need a jar of dried tomatoes, tin of stoned black olives, one shallot per person, one glass of dry red wine, like the sound of that, handful of frozen peas, olive oil, grated Parmesan, pasta, penne pasta or whatever, hundred grams per person. This is what you do. Use a blender to chop the dried tomatoes and olives together. I like the sound of that. Form me a coarse paste. If the tomatoes, olives are already in oil, fine. Include it. If not, add olive oil to make the paste. This plumelli paste will make around six servings and any excess can be stored. Always useful. Fry the shallots in some oil. Meanwhile, put the pasta onto a roll, roll Rolling boil. Rolling boil? I think so. When the shallots begin to brown, add two tablespoons of paste per person and the red wine. Stir and reduce for five minutes or so. Chuck in the frozen peas for the last minute or two. The pasta should be just about done. Plonk the sauce onto each pasta serving with a sprinkle of parmesan. Pour yourself a glass of red. Buon appetito. Oh, All all I can say is Jamie Oliver, watch out that's uh thank you very much for that we've all got to try that uh if you're running at the moment or rowing just listen back take a note with a pen and paper and you've got a dream dinner and get a glass of red wine and we you know we can carry on partying even though we are incarcerated or semi-incarcerated in the next phase of the lockdown thank you very much for that now we've been going for about uh, 45 minutes enjoy italy by the way and don't worry about us uh, apparently there's a heat wave on so we're we're as good as you in italy andrew we're gonna we're gonna enjoy that pasta i've got, could have got loads more questions about salmon and flags and all the rest of it i promise you we'll come back to them but i uh, said so we've been going for about three quarters of an hour so i'm just gonna wind up here and i said so i kind of recommend a book for you to read over Easter. i'm a, I, I'm a great fan of diaries I think I recommended at the start of the first lockdown Woodrow Wyatt's diaries which conjure up the 80s and 90s and the sort of relationship between the media and politics I'm going to recommend a very different kind of diary for you now and that's Alistair Campbell's diary some of you might have read the earlier volumes and then thought oh well I won't bother with the later ones when he was out of power but Volume 8 has just come out. I've started reading it. I've, I've read the others. And they are fascinating on so many levels. It's partly a kind of drama thing, you know, it's kind of Shakespearean thing. What do people at the heart of government do afterwards? And part of that answer is that although they are no longer formally in positions of power, they continue to be at the heart of politics in different ways so you know this is covering 2010 to 2015 the Ed Miliband leadership of the Labour Party Alistair is speaking to Tony Blair quite a lot you get a sense of Blair's take on things which is quite interesting and for example Blair is fairly supportive of the Osborne economic policies and They all regard the Miliband, Ed Miliband approach as being too much in a comfort zone. But it it, it highlights the pressures Ed Miliband was under because they were all so critical. They were all much closer to David, who features heavily in these diaries. But I think, and they all concluded he was not going to win, and they were right about that. But Ed Miliband was trying to do something which is actually harder than being anywhere near a comfort zone which is to espouse policies which would be slaughtered by the newspapers and therefore and the BBC would pick that up and adopt a more critical tone themselves Um, now that is tough but the sort of criticism of the so-called Blairite wing was that he was being not ambitious enough in taking on the party well that's the easy bit compared with taking on all those newspapers and the media so anyway that's all fascinating the degree to which Ed Miliband speaks to Alistair Campbell for advice on presentation and other issues to do with leadership Alistair's own post-politics life in inverted commas because he's still really at the heart of it there's all kind of stuff with his psychiatrist the children so it's a very human drama Uh, but it takes you behind the scenes largely of the Labour Party as it adapts to opposition after 13 years of power but you also get this kind of personal dimension as well and I found them all very compelling I think they are honest no doubt he's taken some stuff out um, but not much I mean there's a there's a lot there that you think oh blimey I wonder when they had those conversations did they know it was going to be in the diary there are tear-jerking moments as well. Uh, the death of Philip Gould, uh, his close friend, and one of the sort of architects of New Labour is, is, is really moving, uh, unbearably so at times. So it's, it's it's a rich read, and as I say, it kind of shines lights uh, in, in a way that you, I just find very uh, revealing and interesting. And in some ways, I think they are as illuminating as the diaries at the heart of things, you know, the whole Blair-Brown tensions in government that build up to the 97 election, because that is so extensively chronicled. This casts light in other areas, um, and I could talk about it for longer, but this podcast has gone on for long enough. Anyway, I recommend it, and I think you will find it interesting and revealing. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much. Thanks for all your questions. Keep them coming in. Uh, There's loads I haven't read out. I'm very conscious of that. Sorry about that. Uh, Hopefully we can get to some of them next week. And have a great week. Keep making sense of things. That's the challenge in this sort of mad period we're living through. And see you all next time. Thank you.